So after being in the Ukraine, I thought it would be nice to bring Sharon a small gift. And uh, James and I, we had our connection in Paris. And I thought, you know, you know, you don't have much time in Paris, so how about I go get a bottle of perfume, right? What says love more than perfume from Paris? And so I go in there, and the lady, sales lady shows me this bottle of perfume, you know, and 120 U.S. dollars. I'm going like, that's 5 billion Canadian. What are you talking about? So, I, you know, I said, you know, ma'am, that's a bit much. Do you, do you have something you know, a little bit smaller. So she returns with a smaller bottle, and you know how they spread it. It's $80, you know, U.S., and again, well, that's, I'm kind of complaining at this point in time. I'm hot and sweaty, ran to our plane. You know, that's still quite a bit, and I notice she's getting annoyed, you know, because she probably thinks I'm American, mind you, but, you know, she's getting annoyed. Sorry to my American friends. Sorry, not sorry, actually. So uh, <laughs> she comes and she brings a tiny bottle, this tiny little thing, 30 U.S., and I looked at her and I said, what I really mean is, 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 do you have something really cheap? And so she turned around, she came back to me, and she holds up a mirror. And um, <laughs> so today I'd like us to look at who we are, all right? And I want us to take a long look in the mirror. That's the whole purpose of this morning. We're going to take a long look in the mirror and see who we are in this reflection, not what we act like. Not what other people perceive us to be, not what we have been in the past, but who we really are. You with me? Thank you. Appreciate that. I heard that. Okay, so what's the one Bible verse that everybody seems to have memorized, whether they're believers or not? Right? You can't judge me. Right? Judge not or you're going to be judged. No judging. Bible says don't judge. That's what we're looking at today. How many times have we just taken a look, though, at another person and you've made a judgment? Even this morning. Look what they're wearing. I can't believe it. Those shoes don't match. Come on. You know, we take one look at them and we think we know everything about a person. So if you didn't already know the story of these two, people were obviously passing judgment. And as a fact, we were passing judgment when we were watching. I love it where the two hosts in the back behind the curtains turn around and go, didn't expect that, did you? What were they doing? They were affirming the fact that we were passing judgment. It's something that we do every day of our lives, whether we're conscious or unconscious of it. But let's make it more personal. How many of you here have been judged based on rumors and lies? Think about that for a second. Don't put up your hands or I'll put it on Facebook. How many of you here have been judged because of your past? How many here have been criticized for doing something different or even being different? Have you ever felt the sting of being unfairly judged by another person when they didn't even know you? See, every one of us has a story. And a part of our story includes being judged or condemned unfairly by other people something that we really have very little, if any, control over. And the challenge with being on the receiving end of judgment or condemnation is to not let people's unfair judgment shut us down. Have you ever tried to point out the truth to somebody only to have you accuse them of judging them? Right? It's, it's there all the time. Maybe you suggest to a co-worker that drinking and chasing women is wrong because he's an alcoholic and he's married. You know, how many times have you heard, you're judging me and you're calling yourself a Christian. 
Like, what do you say to that? You know, I don't know if it's based on our history, if it's based on our genetics or something else, but we're really quick to sum up other people when you think about it. We see others doing wrong, well, we, we see ourselves always as virtuous, do we not? That our way is always the right way, and how I do it is always the proper way, especially within church circles. You know, with precious little information and with an absurd confidence in our character radar, if I can put it that way, we make judgments about other people. Judgments which are often too early to be reliable, and they're called, of course, what we, we call them, we call them prejudgments, are actually prejudice. You know, Jesus makes an interesting shift in thought from what we were looking at in, in Matthew uh, 5. Uh, and six, he, he now shifts from encouraging us and relying on God for our needs and the Lord's prayer. He now shifts to this prohibition against judging other people. And I think no sentence in the Bible is more familiar, more misunderstood, more misapplied, and even more quoted. But few people really understand what, or want to understand what Jesus is actually forbidding us to do. And I wanted, what I want to do this morning is to look at what Jesus really means when he tells us not to judge others. And, and what I want us to take from here, when you leave this morning, and so if you have your phones or a pen and paper out, I have something for you at the very end of this life lesson that couldn't be more practical. All right? And I want to be able to you know, give you some steps that Jesus gives us to help keep us from breaking this command. Let me say this, do not judge doesn't mean that you can't say anything critical or pointed to another person. It doesn't mean don't discern, it doesn't mean don't think. In this context, Jesus himself alludes alludes to certain people and, and calls these people, when you read the context, he calls them dogs and pigs. Do you not see that? He also warns his disciples of false prophets in sheep's clothing, which we're going to look at in in a few weeks. And, And in both of these examples, Jesus makes a judgment about various individuals. Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus requires his disciples to confront believers who are in sin. And furthermore, the New Testament is very clear that Christians are to judge both error and sin. So despite what many people believe, the ideal Christian is not an undiscerning, all-accepting jellyfish who lives out the misrepresentation of judge not. Christians can and should judge. Scripture clearly teaches we are to judge. And since Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture... There are verses in the scripture telling us to judge that are not in conflict with Matthew 7, 1. So the question that we have to ask when we're looking at this is what does the Bible mean by judging? Because to judge has a wide range of meanings, especially within the New Testament. There are numerous meanings of the word judge, and in order to be able to do what Matthew 7 means, we need to understand what Jesus actually intends for the passage. And the first question that we ask is if this passage is talking, you know, is this passage talking about a condemning final judgment? Because the, that, the word judge can mean to condemn. Unfortunately, I'm convinced that, 
that this is the most often disobeyed command in the church. And, you know, we have judging others down to a science. Somewhere along the way, we have forgotten that judging and condemning others is actually disobeying Jesus Christ. And it's a serious negation of his lordship over us. And so we forget that final judgment actually belongs to God. You and I are not in the condemning business. And if anybody needs to be condemned, God himself is going to take care of that. The word judge is also used in the context of a person like a judge, you know, with the robe and the, the gavel or a courtroom or even a trial. Judging is also used in the context of church discipline. In Matthew 18, a judgment is required to know if a church discipline is needed in order to be execute, uh, exercised. <laughs> executed. <laughs> Welcome to the Inquisition. In Titus 3, the, the a character evaluation is needed in order to determine whether or not a person is causing division. In Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, we're told to determine if a person is leading an unruly life. In 2 John, we're told to make a judgment concerning the teachings of another person. In Matthew 7, Christians are to judge false and true prophets. Judging also means discernment which means to weigh carefully and to form an opinion. Interesting. Discernment. To weigh carefully and to form an opinion. They're going to make an evaluation based on the facts of the matter. And we'll, no, uh, we'll notice that Jesus later tells, tells us not to cast our pearls before the swine or give what is holy to the dogs. So how do we decide who are swine? How do we decide who are dogs, according to the passage, if, if we're forbidden to make a fair evaluation. Matthew 7, 16 to 20, Jesus tells us that by our fruits, we will be known. So how do you know that somebody by their fruits, unless we make judgments, discernment, right? So what does it mean? So some look at this passage of Scripture, actually the majority of people look at this passage of Scripture and they use it to their own advantage and they say, look at Jesus' words mean that we're not to engage in any form of analysis or any form of evaluation of others. In other words, there's this line of thinking that says we cannot conclude that a person's behavior or lifestyle is wrong and that they are wrong for engaging it. No, you can't do that, right? And that's the culture in which we live in today. The emphasis seems to be on tolerance and acceptance. We tolerate and we accept absolutely everything. We're told to be tolerant and accepting uh, of any lifestyle and any act without any critical evaluation. Just let it happen. And then there are those who would like to justify all manner of evil, if I can put it that way, used in this commandment to throw at anybody who's actually going to take a stand for which is right. So what are we to do? What are we to do as Christians? What are we to do as a church? How do we handle this passage of Scripture in light of the culture in which we find ourselves? A culture that praises tolerance and acceptance when truly it is not. It's beautifully hypocritical. So let me be clear. One is not wrong to judge in the sense of making a decision. Walk with me. See, all discernment involves the formation of judgments. We're asked to surrender 
here the judgment of condemnation. We are not asked to surrender the judgment of discernment. However, one is always wrong to judge in the sense of condemning people. You are going to hell! You got me? I was going to have pictures of people, um, you know, that we've experienced in our travels, yelling at people, you know, doing stuff like that. And you know what? It actually, when I was going through my research, it, it just got me ag- aggravated. So you're not going to see that because we know that. And maybe some of us have participated in that. Where the final judgment is telling people where they're going to end up. To which I say, are you God? One is always wrong to judge in the sense of condemning. There's a universe of difference between being discerningly critical and being hypercritical. A discerning spirit is constructive. Think about it. It's constructive. A hypercritical spirit is destructive. And all of this means that you can judge what people do, but you cannot judge why they do it. You can judge what people say, you just cannot judge why they say it. And as believers, we always need to look at Jesus, and and we see that he never condemned anybody. Jesus always discerned their behavior, but he didn't condemn. And for some reason, it's easier for us to jump into the negative conclusions about people than it is to assume the best, right? Right? We always go to the worst. We always go negative on people. And when we do this, we ascribe them bad intentions, evil purposes that maybe actually are probably not true. We also reveal something about ourselves in the process when we act like this. For the faults that we see in others are actually a reflection of our own. Amen? Or ouch. You know, what Jesus is prohibiting here is hypocritical, unloving, condemning judgment on our part to other people. He is not telling us that we're not to examine another person's fruits, another person's actions, and then make an evaluation, but we are not to pronounce a final judgment on them. But Jesus is telling us that leaping to judge others is actually a very foolish thing. He says, don't judge, that you may uh, not be judged. Um, uh, Basically, you'll be measured by the same standard. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged with the measure that you use. It will be measured to you. So the way that you are judging people, it is now going to be reflected back on you. In the Old Testament, David sinned with Bathsheba, slept with her, had a baby. Nathan the prophet uh, comes in, and, you know, the story un- unfolds itself, and he brings this court case to David, and uh, he wants David to judge the case. And it was about a rich man with many sheep who stole the only lamb of a poor man. And now David, you know, doesn't even think about his lifestyle and what's going on. He's very angry, and with his judgment against this thief now is incredibly harsh. As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan looks at David and he says, you are the man. David's angry judgment blew up in his face. And there's this deadly uh, reciprocity when we judge others because our, our judgment inevitably comes home to visit us. So why does this happen? It happens because we typically judge others more harshly in areas that we ourselves are the weakest, but are in denial of that weakness. 
And the basic principle that our judgment of others will be applied to us is also God's ingenious way of erasing our infamous double standards. We like to apply a harsh standard to everybody else's sin, right? Lenient standards to our own sin. Because, you know, our lies, they're only little white lies. But we're indignant and judgmental when somebody lies to us, right? I only stretch the truth. But if you lied to me, you know, we, we, the world's over. We call into question their integrity, right, in every area of their life, but over and against our own double standards. This is what's going on. And Jesus warns us, the same standard that you judge others is going to be held to you. And so many times the tendency on our part is to ignore any good that may exist in a person and to look for the slightest hint of something that may be less than perfect. And when we see a sign of any perfection, then we're ready to call down the fire of heaven on them. So what makes us so judgmental? See, judging is so profoundly arrogant, and arrogance in turn is rooted in our own deep insecurities. And moreover, our insecurity represents a still deeper denial of God's good word about us. So we stubbornly choose to believe our own critical uh, assessment instead of what God says about us. Look at the birds of the air. Look at, you know, did not store, sow or reap or store away in, in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? We looked at this last week. We're valuable to God. Why are we so hard on ourselves? Why are we so hard on other people? And it's because of our own insecurity and deep self-criticism. And what we do is we pick at others and we try to shore up our own staggering self-worth. You ever been a part of those conversations? yes. We all have. We've all done it. Have you ever caught yourself in one of those conversations where you're picking at people and it goes from the exterior and then it starts going to character and then it starts going to physical, right? We all do it. And sometimes we catch ourselves and sometimes we get caught up in the tsunami. And, other, and all of this is nothing other than sin playing itself in our lives, imprisoning us and, and condemning others. Because of our insecurity, we feel the need to protect ourselves and make ourselves feel better. And we want to deny any weakness or sin in ourselves because that would be a chink in our armor, right? And this is the root problem. At the core, judgmentalism is a failure to admit our own sin. You know, this is why Jesus told the man who brought the adulterous woman to him in John 8, you know, say, he turned around and he said, let the guy without sin cast the first stone. You know, when we consider our sin first, and this is what Jesus begins to model throughout the New Testament, we find that we need, <clears throat> we need help. We need to help ourselves. And we're in no position at that point then to judge other people. But what usually happens when we don't consider our sin first is we turn a microscopic eye to other people's sin, never even stopping to consider our own. The Bible says man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. And so we infringe upon the office of God when we pass a condemning judgment on people. We are not God. And then it's judgment which is hypocritical. Romans 2.1, it, it, it is this self-righteous, uh, condemning, holier-than-thou kind of judgment that Jesus had foremost in his mind while speaking this passage. And so, again, let's go back to culture, because it goes without saying that unbelievers pounce all over Christians' hypocrisy, right, and judgment. Um, 
A Hindu professor once found out that there was a man in his class that was a Christian, and the professor said, if you Christians were like Jesus Christ, India would be at your feet tomorrow. A learned Muslim who recently became a Christian said, if Christians were truly Christians like Christ, there would be no Islam. USA Today poll showed that 72% of unchurched Americans agree that a God exists, but at the same percentage says the church is full of hypocrites. 44% says that Christians get on their nerves, right? People flat out don't like Christians. The media has turned Christians into a cultural punching bag. I don't know if you've seen the movie Mr. Fantastic. Guy lives up in like the Yukon or something with his kids and his wife, um, as you find out the story, has mental illness and eventually she's hospitalized, eventually she kills herself, the family's notified and that's the process of trying to get to the funeral. So here they are living in the bush, living off the land, incredibly cut, incredibly healthy kids, you know, self-taught, you know, um, homeschooled, incredibly brilliant and they end up in uh, a major city and they're looking around and, and the kids are all, they're shocked, they're, they're shocked. And the question is, Dad, are they sick? Because now they're looking around in, in midtown America and all the people are horribly obese. And they're going, Dad, are they sick? And then somebody started making, one of the kids starts making fun and Dad steps in and says, we don't make fun of people. To which one of the girls immediately responds, except Christians, right, Dad? And that's part of the movie. It keeps going on. Very interesting flick. And so I I, I watch these kind of films, and I have to ask myself, have we brought some of the pain upon ourselves? And if you're honest and humble, you'd probably have to say, yes, guilty as charged, right? We stop and you think for a moment, are you notorious for criticizing the media? Oh, I am. Politicians. Oh, I am. Your teachers, not so much. I married one. Your pastors, you better be not. I won't pray for you. Your boss, always, except for my staff. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Seriously, we can't even watch a football game without being critical of the quarterback or a hockey game, right? Without being critical of the coach or the referee, right? We can do better. Most Christians are critical. Some are even bold enough to boast that their spiritual gift is criticism. (laughs) I have the gift of criticism. (laughs) Yeah, you do. And it's crazy because they don't even see what's coming out of their mouth. And Jesus says, be slow to judge others and be quick to judge yourself. And so God's going to use the basics, the same standard uh, you use to evaluate others when he evaluates you. That's the essence of the scripture. I love what James 3.1 says. Many of you should presume to... Uh, many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That scares the living daylights out of me. And then what's the last verse? We all stumble. But we're judged, pastors, leaders, teachers, bosses, coaches, star players, we're all us leaders the ones that people look to, we're judged even more strictly. But it's not talking about the people. It's talking about God's view on us. Now, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Remember, we looked at that. And if you're gracious in your dealings with other people's failures and shortcomings now, you're going to receive mercy in the future when the Lord evaluates your life. Trust me, I am trying really hard to be graceful and full of mercy. 
And people who live in glass houses shouldn't, you know, throw stones. You've heard that one or even hang pictures for that matter. But the longer that I'm in pastoral ministry, the greater my empathy for the struggle of my own pastoral colleagues. The longer I, I, I walk with Christ, the more I emphasize with my fellow believers. The longer that I'm married and strive to raise a family, the more I can empathize with other couples and other parents. It's hard to be who you want to be, isn't it? You know, I want to grant grace and I want to extend mercy to other people. I want to believe the best and, and in others and to be kind. But when necessary, I also want to love brothers and sisters enough to call them out on their sin. Isn't that love? So what standard then are we going to use? Romans 2 says, Therefore you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on somebody else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Okay, so that's the standard. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based in truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think that you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you, judger, to repentance? So one of the reasons that we need to evaluate the standard that we use is that Jesus said that that standard that we choose to use on other people obviously is used against us. Romans tells us that God is... He's got this tolerance thing nailed down. He's got patience. He's got kindness. And what's the purpose of that? That tolerance, patience, and kindness is to lead who to repentance? Not God, us, to change our lives. And what we want from God is mercy. What we need from God, if you think about it, is mercy. If we want and need mercy, then we need to use that standard. Do you think about it when we are evaluating other people in our relationships? And then verse 3, why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, stage actor basically is what he's saying. You actor, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And the illustration that, uh, that comes from, here's an illustration that comes from Jesus' own background when you think about it because he is the carpenter's son. And in this, verses 3 and 4, he asks us two very pointed questions. Who, who is Jesus placing opposite to us in this scene? He talks about his brother. When you look at the Greek, it's actually his brother. The NIV uses the word friend. I don't, I don't like that translation because Jesus says brother. Why does he say brother here instead of neighbor, so to speak? It's because, unfortunately, we are the, the most judgmental of those who are closest to us. I think which is tragic when you consider that they are precisely the ones who we should be actually giving the most elbow room to. And often within the families, not only our own personal families, but even within the church family, where the love should be running the deepest, the sharp criticism runs just as deep. Often within the family of God, we're, we're all brothers and sisters and you know, let's be honest, the judgment can run really deep. And so the trick then is to understand this as, as painful truth. Accept the judgment against you as simple, but maybe a painful reality. But insofar as you are able, refrain from judging in return. You can't control what people do to you. You can't stop it. 
but you can stop yourself from reacting. And then by stopping yourself from reacting, you then in turn become a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. Now, what's in my brother's eye is the other question. Well, that's literally, it's a piece of sawdust, a very small, minute particle of dry wood that tends to be an irritant. We, many of us have, have had that. You get something into your eye, it's tiny, you can't even see it, but it's there. So what do we do? Imagine what a sharp piece of sawdust would do to a person's eye. You know, uh, our, our brother is in great pain in the scene that Jesus is creating here. It's, it's, not just, it's not just, oh, he's got a little piece of dust. No, he's got a piece of sawdust. His eye is irritated. We know our eyes can get inflamed. They can water. They turn red. We can't see out of them. We keep them closed. It's not a good scene. And Jesus says that while my brother's eye is watering from the, the irritation, if I can use it, of the sawdust, I'm flailing about with a log in my own eye. And there are several things that we need to take a look at this with, and notice about this tragic and yet, in some respect, very comical scene that Jesus draws for us here. First, the log in my eye, when you think about it, if I have a log in my eye, it renders me blind to see anything. I can't see a thing. And so my looking then at the faults of another to weigh them and to judge them is absolutely ludicrous. And second, I'm totally oblivious to the gross problems in my own heart because my eye is so critically focused on my brother. And now I'm, you know... Thus, I'm, I'm blind to my brother because of the log. I'm blind to myself uh, because I'm totally focused on my brother. Thus, in seeking to set myself up as a judge, really what happens is that I'm utterly blind. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're coming there. No, I'll be very nice. So my, my wife has... My wife has a, spark, a speck. Yeah, oh, I see. I, you know, how many times do we do this to people, right? This is the illustration it's doing. So my, my brother, my, my wife has a speck in her eye, and I'm going to look at it. And he gives the illustration that I have a log in mine. So hang on. This is the log. Let me, let me look into your eye. Okay, hang on. How do, I, how do I look into? Do you see the illustration that Jesus has said? You did that so wonderful. Thank you. That's the illustration, ridiculous, comical at that. Because that log is infinitely larger than the speck of sawdust. And, and the, the, the comparison implies having a heart that is judgmental and arrogant and blind to its own faults. And that's the infinitely larger problem in the whole thing here. If anything for which I judge my brother, and, and I'm judging on that speck, but yet I have this log that actually affects the relationship. That actually affects, you know, my, I'm trying to help, but I'm oblivious to what I'm doing in that process. And so what the main problem here in verses 3 and 4 is it's that the one who is judging has profound blindness. And this blindness is seen in this log-infested eye, you know. And it's interesting, the, the idea is, that Jesus is creating, is let me fix your problem. I'm the judgmental person with the log in my eye, but let me fix your problem. Let me fix your problem with the sawdust. And the fact of the matter is, only the Lord can solve other people's problems. And he's not going to use a blind person who's so unaware of their own arrogance 
And this blindness is the point that Jesus is trying to communicate to us is the point of being ridiculous. The next word in this verse is my favorite in today's text. It's first. First, take the log out of your own eye. You know, if we would only listen to this little word, first, it would virtually stop all condemning judgments on people. Perhaps the log in our eye is the log of finding fault itself. Some of us are gifted in finding fault in other people. The diseases of the critical spirit, we function in that gift. The 2020 vision of finding the faults of other people. Some of people are great at that. It's time that they stop. The unnoticed log, if I can put it this way, is often the critical spirit itself. It's not so much, you know, the sense. It's the critical spirit itself. And if we would stop to consider the state of our own sinfulness before God, we would have to turn to him for forgiveness. We would be humbled um, and in that process be able to remove the log in our eye in order to help somebody else in that case. And once we are able to do that, once we come before God with a repentant heart and a forgiving heart, you know, we can see the magic of God's handiwork at work. You, you, we will see clearly. You, so Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. Why? See clearly first. See clearly before you try to take the sawdust out of your hurting brother. And, and this is the only way, and it's right, and it's godly to, to go to a brother, to mention the sawdust in his eye, after we first have gone before the Lord to confess and purge the logs from ours. And when we do that, this will remove all arrogance and replacing it with humility and a true sense that our brother is our brother and we are both under God together. And from this platform of humility and, and personal integrity, we, we earn the right to speak about the sawdust in our brother's eye. And because our own eye is cleared by the Lord, the Lord may well use us then to help heal our brother. Again, the sawdust in our brother's eye is described as a small thing, but the resulting pain is large and immediate. How many times have you been offended by somebody's word? How many times have you offended somebody by a word? A small thing, a little thing. Oh, you just misunderstood. But the result is huge. And to see it and to remove it actually becomes a very delicate operation in which it requires prayer, a great deal of gentleness, a lasting commitment not to hurt by judging, but to hurt, heal in a multifaceted sort of ways. Galatians says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly, interesting, this is where you've removed the log out of your eye, help that person back onto that right path, but, and I love that, but be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. This is a reiteration of what we're looking at here. Faults are like the headlights of a car. You know, those, those of others seem much more glaring than your own, right? How many times are you driving going, oh, that guy's got his brights on, and they're flashing you? Well, you got your bright side. <laughs> it's just the way it is. How often do we overlook our own failures and sin while we criticize the faults of other people? In fact, our own judgment may reflect our own flaws, which usually are more serious than those that we see in other people. Here's my words of encouragement to you. Look to heal. 
Don't leap to judge. Many of the blessings I give every Sunday is one about healing. Go and heal the world around you. Be agents of healing. That's what we're called to do. The eye is very sensitive, as we all know. It takes a compassionate hand. It takes a delicate touch to do the surgery of the eye. When you have eye trouble, you need that doctor who knows what they're doing because even the slightest mistake can have catastrophic consequences. And in the same way, when we minister to one another in the Christian community, we must only do so after careful introspection and to make sure our own motives are pure. Then we can proceed with the appropriate care and humility. And sometimes in our haste, when you think about it, to help other people, we can actually cause more damage than that original speck uh, has caused. And so this doesn't mean we, we must be perfect before we can correct, guide, speak into another Christian's life. However, Jesus' words do require that you have dealt as decisively as possible with any obvious area of disobedience in your own life before you attempt to correct somebody else. Otherwise, really what you're doing is you're attempting to perform surgery on people blindfolded. And in that position, neither the patient nor the doctor feels 100% confident. And moreover, if you're committing the same sin, the judgment you pass on somebody else boomerangs back on you. And you definitely don't want that. Remember the 80s for some of us? Jimmy Swagger, pointing fingers, yelling at the immoral people, sexuality, everything else is going on and off, and what's he doing? Pardon my crassness, but banging some little chicky on the side. Same standard. And so we need to remember to be slow to judge others, and we need to be very quick to judge ourselves. Finally, Jesus says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Well, when you think about it, you know, today dogs are, are loved as pets, except for the one at my house. <laughs> but the other thing is pigs are loved as breakfast, right? You got to think about that one. But in Jesus' day, dogs and pigs were very much despised because they were unclean animals. And when you, you heard the term dog used, you, were, uh, you know, we think of a nice, well-groomed household pet, you know, called man's best friend, uh, um, Coco. Uh, but in, in Jesus' day, the dogs lived in filth. They were running the streets. They scavenged for food. That's what they did. These dogs, Jesus is referring to, are not the little poop poodles or shih tzus, they are street mutts who probably have been scavenging, haven't been fed for a week, and in fact the bizarre behavior of dogs produced fear amongst humans because often their intense hunger would cause them to pack, and then it would have caused them to attack and eat not only other animals, but other humans. Okay? To obey that command is obviously necessary to be able to determine who the dogs and swines are in our world, the dogs and pigs. And Jesus is telling us that we have to determine if we are wasting our efforts, interesting enough, on some people. Think about that. This doesn't mean that we're to give up on them at all, but instead use the energy and the zeal that we are using towards the people you know, that we're trying to, who don't really care about anything about Jesus, and Jesus is saying, no, just spend it on another person and pray that God will send somebody else along the way to reach the person who we're not making any headway with. Don't leap to judge, but do discern. First of all, don't give what is holy to dogs. 
You know, what is holy here, and, and who are the dogs, obviously becomes a question. Holy in the Gospels means belonging to God, uh, authorized by God. And, and more specifically, this term refers to sacrificial meat, um, uh, going back to Leviticus days, Leviticus chapter 22. And so the image Jesus is trying to paint in the mind of his lin- listeners is of the sacrificial meat consecrated uh, uh, to God, which is burnt in, in the uh, Holy of Holies there. And that meat then is torn off the holy altar and given to dogs who ravishly consume it. To these hungry dogs, it's just good cooked meat. It's not a big deal. It's not something holy before God in their minds. And so can you, again, it's this idea, can you imagine giving holy food from the temple to an unclean scavenger dog? Of course, they would never do that. The word dog was used by the Jews in the first century to designate heathens, to call, you know, you're a dog, you're a Gentile, that's who you are. What Jesus is commanding us here is that laying out what is holy and sacred before those who are arrogant and disdainful of anything holy. You know, these will only snarl and howl with no regards to its holiness. We need to be careful. We need to be discerning in who we're interacting with in that way. The pig in the ancient world is, is far more different than the modern cartoon characters like Porky Pig, right? Although pork is highly priced food even today, um, and even in the Mediterranean world, it was rejected by the Jews because the pigs, like dogs, were scavenging animals. It was forbidden. Their habits occasionally led pigs to feed on decaying flesh, um, which was obviously a practice deplorable to the Jews, and pigs were often dangerous. Why? Because they ravaged fields. And while running wild in the city streets, they were often responsible for deaths of you know, the, the uh, invalids or even little children. So there was a problem with the pigs. Pearls is another thing, interesting aspect. Pearls are extremely precious. Why are you comparing pigs and pearls? The pearl stands alone as one of the gemstones that is a product of a living organism. And and a grain of sand or some other foreign object comes into the shell of that oyster, and that oyster covers it with a layer upon layer uh, to lessen the pain until the irritant becomes a pearl. And then that that pearl is hidden, and it's a great value, but it comes at a great cost. It comes at a great price. So to have a collection of pearls and to throw them into a pig pen would not only lose them, right? This that took so long to make, that is so valuable to find, that it's all there. You would lose them in the slime. But on a second note, you're also going to anger the pig. The pig doesn't wear the pearls. It doesn't care about that, right? They might come after you because what you're doing is throwing them inedible food. They're cracking their teeth. They don't know what's going on. And what makes this term interesting in this verse is the pronoun, your pearls. Casting your pearls. Just as what we saw, what is holy to God, that which belongs to him personally, and it's offered to him by those who love him and cannot be given to dogs. You know, there's this holiness aspect, but you don't have to be a Bible scholar to recognize that the term dogs and swines are figure of speech for people. That's what it's talking about. They're not complimentary terms. But exactly who are the dogs and the hogs, I guess, is the question. And Jesus is talking about people who openly reject the gospel of Christ. He's not talking about unbelievers, but the enemies of the gospel. And Jesus is saying, don't cram truth down their closed-minded throats, basically. Don't waste your words on those who are not going to listen. 
Rather, go to those who are receptive. Go to those who are hungry for hope. And the description of what is holy in pearls most likely refers to the message of the gospel later on in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So the kingdom of heaven is like. And we're going to be looking at that when we get there. You know, there's this indication that the message, the message of the gospel can't be defiled by those who are unreceptive to it, those who have rejected it, those who have rejected Jesus' invitation. Something so valuable shouldn't be given to those who have no appreciation for such precious truths. Their nature is demonstrated by the rejection of that message. And it's a warning against a, a mistaken zeal in proclaiming to the gospel to those who intent is mockery or ridicule or even worse. In other words, we need to discern what we're doing with what is holy. You know, do we stand there and yell and scream at people? Or is that the casting of our pearls before swine? Is that giving to the dogs, people who mock. At your work world, I trust that you've all had people who mock you for your faith. And what do you do? We tend to shy away. You know, we want to tell them to go to hell, right? Oh, you're going to go to hell. Oh, all of a sudden we're judges. No, just we tend to shy away. But I wonder too if there's an added part of this scripture that we sort of miss out as believers. That when your Christian life is so consumed with criticism that you are using the gifts that God gave you in a perverse and wasteful way. You're throwing away your pearls, the gift of the Christian life, the gifts that God gave you. You're throwing away before the pigs, which would be your excessively critical life. And so the imagery that Jesus actually portrays here is very vivid. And if you choose to cast your pearls before the pigs, don't be surprised if you're trampled on and they swine turn on you and actually tear you to pieces. We have to be very careful then how we apply this section of scripture. The easy way is to say, well, I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine anymore. You know, my spouse, my sibling, my parent has not been responsive to the gospel. Well, then that's it. They, you know, they've even mentally or emotionally persecuted me. You've heard that before. And that may be the case, but you still bear the responsibility to love your family member and to share Christ with him or her. And it's very unlikely that he or she is a dog or a hog, regardless of what you may think. The key here is to pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray that the Lord would show you how to go about persevering in difficult relationships with unbelievers who are hostile in the rejection of Christ and his gospel. Pray that the Lord would make it clear when it's time to move on to more fertile fields. It's coming in and understanding, making a discernment of the way, where we find ourselves and where are we putting our energy into. And so a key principle regarding judging is this, is that where judgment is needed, let it begin with me first. This is what Jesus is saying. And so often in my marriage, in my work here at Seoul, in my family, I find it so easy to find anybody else to blame and judge and to pass over my own part of the problem. But I need to humbly turn myself over to my Lord, and he's my judge. 
and let Jesus Christ deal with me first because in the case of judgment and having a me first attitude, we sometimes think that that's perfectly okay when it's not. By comparing scripture with scripture, it becomes obvious that the words in verse one are not to be taking of an endorsement of moral tolerance and politically correct speech. Don't let people keep you from discerning. World, the world needs people who have a firm moral conviction but can love people at the same time just like Jesus. Some people have harmless specks in their eye. Others have harmful clubs in their hands. And this is then counseling to the disciples that not to be stupid. We're not only to be harmless as doves, but we're to be wise as serpents. And there are times where we need to stand up and speak out critically. But we are not to be critical in our spirit, but we are to be merciful towards people. And there are going to be times where we have to make a judgment. And, but if we evaluate our standards, our lives, our motives, it will help to keep us from making critical judgments against people. If we don't make judgments, we're not going to be able to help people. So we need to live in a world of discernment. We need to always check our heart first. And so there are a number of ways that you can lovingly confront a person. I shy away against the big signs that say, you know, you're going to hell and screaming at people. Caution against that. But I like these next 11 points. Make sure your own heart is right with God before you confront somebody. That's the hardest part. In relation, and it's relationship. This is all relationship-based. It's all relationship-based. Remember, if you're, if your neighbor, right? Not neighbor, it's if your brother. The one that you love. Make sure your heart is right. You have a relationship. Pray for the person that needs to be confronted. We take time, we pray. We check our own heart, we begin to pray. Number three, we set up a time with the person to talk. In private, without interruption. But don't put it off. You set up a time, you make an appointment, you do it privately, you do it where it's just one-on-one. And when the occasion calls for it, you confront it immediately. That's hard. And don't take out your own anger on somebody. That's even harder. Maybe you're really offended by what they've done or what they've said or whatever. But you have to deal with that in point one and point two. Point six, begin with a word of encouragement. That's always difficult. Because a lot of times, you'll say a catchphrase that people know that a bat's coming down the aisle. Right? So you need to be, you know I love you, right? So allow me now to hit you with a bat. We got to be careful when we begin with the word of encouragement. Ask the person if you could share something with you that would help them you know, if I could share something with you that would help you, would you want me to? You know what that's doing? That's giving permission for you to speak into people's lives. If they say yes, great. If they say no, that's the end of your meeting. Some people forget. No, I, I'm still going to say it. At that point in time, you cross the line. If the person doesn't give you permission to speak, if they don't want to come in and have this conversation, then that question is a critical question. Number eight, state the issue that, as you see it. Give your perspective on the issue. You know, say, this is the way I see it. Please help me. Notice that the, the attitude behind there, please help me to understand. Please help, please help me to understand. 
what you're doing and admit that maybe you misunderstood or got the wrong perspective. Our world does not do that. Help me to understand. What does that say? That actually is a, a, is a statement of humility where we come in before people and we literally come on our knees. And we're saying, help me to understand means I need to be a learner. I'm submitting to you as a teacher, help me to understand. How many times do we do that? And then ask how we can help the person. How can I help you in this? I want to help you. Maybe they're involved in destructive behavior. Maybe they're involved in... Uh, immoral behavior, whatever, but how can we help them? Another one, keep it off Facebook. That's point number 10. Keep it off Facebook, Instagram, and specifically Snapchat, right? Be confidential. Can we not be confidential? This is a thing that Sharon and I have now. Well, we always have, but it's, we find that lately it's been heightened, or I'll get a phone call from somebody, and they'll say, I need to talk to you. I don't know who to talk to in the whole city. Go figure this. And, uh, okay, fine. Um, But I I need, quote, I need a safe place. Okay, so do you want to meet in my office, or do you want to meet at a coffee shop? Obviously, not thinking a coffee shop's a safe place. So obvious, obvious it is. Having to guarantee that what is said within the four walls of our room stays there. And not even telling my wife, but you're okay with the scenario. Doesn't need to know the details. Can we be confidential? Remember what Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Can we say, I promise not to tell anybody? Because that is critical in our society. And finally, pray for the person. That's where we find ourselves. And so the next time we're ready to judge, to be the judge, to be the jury, to be the executioner of another, remember that God is using the same standard against us. So my admonishment to all of us here today is let us look for the best in people. Let us look for the best in people. Let us be a people who look to bring out the best in others. Let us be a people who do not write other people off because they look different or they de- dress different or they talk different or they even listen to country music. Trust me, that is my bane in my existence. It's funny because I go like, what's the song for coffee? Uh, was it Miranda? I don't know. What's her name? Miranda Lambert? Is that right? I go, who's that? And everybody goes, you don't know who that is? Well, what's the genre? Country. Well, of course I don't know who that is. Goodness. I judge next time you want to play the critical spirit card on somebody, ask yourself, how, how am I going to be judged in all this? That's where it's at. I shared with you many weeks ago, I've been going through a rough time. I think we've come through. And my rough time has been unfairly judged. And we've come through. And we're going through. To which I say, I thank you all for praying, even though you didn't know what the heck you're praying for. But we're coming through. Stand with me.
Father God, a careless word from our mouths can ruin somebody's day and it can throw mud on a reputation and turn harmony into chaos. My prayer for all of us here at Seoul is that you'd help us to think before we speak. Make us the kind of people who understand the power of words and give us hearts of love so that we may reflect to the world what's inside us. You know, we can't stick a, a cup into a pool of mud and come up with clear water. So God, make us clean on the inside so that when we tell the world about your love that they don't run away. Make us worthy. Sit beside us. Wrap your arms around us. Show us the way. Create clean hearts in us, God, as your children, and we will honor you. And so, Father, I just pray for a brokenness of heart that you would begin to chisel away and work at our judgments on others because we quickly judge others and their motives. I pray even right now that you would bring up individuals that we think that way about, that we would see them that way, that we, and then that, Lord, you would convict us, that we would thank you for your grace, we would thank you for the cross, then we would boast in it and it alone. And I thank you for the chance to open up your word, and my hope is not that we would just read it, but rather your word would read us, and you would show us and expose us to the areas of our lives that we need to allow you to come in and to surrender. So forgive us where we've thought more of ourselves, where we've stopped seeing from an eternal vantage point and just have just sort of consumed what is today. God, teach us and show us what it's like to love our neighbor. Teach us and to show us what it's like to pursue you because I think it will look different for each of us. Help us. Help me deal with the fear that is before me, the things that I need to change and yet hang on to them as a child who's afraid to share their joy. Help me to cast my burdens, my concerns, my cares, my fears on you. Help me to set aside time each day to meet with you alone. And as I come before you, God, teach me to pray in the way that you want me to. Help me to learn more about you. Lord, your word says, if anybody thirsts, let them come to me. I thirst for more of you because, God, so many times I find myself in a dry place without you. And so today we come to you today to drink deeply of your spirit. I know you're everywhere, but I also know that there are deeper manifestations of your presence that we long to experience. Draw us close. And as we draw near to you, so that I may dwell in your presence like never before. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. If you want a blessing today, here it is. May you lean on God in your weak and painful moments. May you know God as your rock, your shelter, your strength, your wing of comfort and support. And may you not be afraid of the questions that press upon your mind and your heart. And may you wait patiently for the day when you'll have their answers. Finally, Soul Sanctuary, may the wellsprings of compassion flow deep within you so that the Holy Spirit can flow through you to heal the hurting world around you. Be blessed. We'll see you next week. Ask, seek, and knock.